1: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: The
2: Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.
0: I very good morning to you 9.15 Monday, July 15th I'm Orla Carmody sitting in this morning for Michael Reid. Looking forward to your company between now and 11 o'clock and you know as always we love to hear your views. You can text our WhatsApp on 086 658 or you can phone us on 1850 715 958 Please do get in touch if you have anything to say and it was a gorgeous weekend I hope you got out and about and made the most of it. Maybe you got to the beach and had one of those glorious days that memories are made of. Later in the programme we'll be hearing about some bylaw changes that might affect the way you use the beach in the future. We'll also be hearing about the Meath County Development Plan, a need for greater community involvement in County Louth and the potential for a coalition involvement for the Green Party and lots more to come on the programme. But first... Up to 120,000 workers in the country are set to benefit from an increase next year in the national minimum wage by 30 cent an hour, bringing it up to 10 euro and 10 cent an hour. Now, that doesn't sound like very much, but it does break what the Taoiseach Leo Vradkar termed last week as the psychological barrier of the 10 euro an hour. It falls well short still though of the amount said to be the basic minimum living wage of 12.30 an hour. And joining us now to discuss this is Michael Taft of SIP2. Good morning Michael. Good morning. Now obviously a little is better than nothing as they say but it is still below where you'd like to see it.
2: Yes I mean the, as you said the living wage which is uh, based on the what is the minimum essential living standard uh, is about 25% above the minimum wage. The minimum wage is a statutory, by, in other words it's set by law uh, that that's the minimum that employers can pay and it's based on an estimate of what the economy's capacity uh, to pay. In other words if they look at sectors like especially the hospitality and the wholesale retail where you know over 50 percent of those on uh, minimum wage work and they make an assessment as to whether what, what is the capacity of those sectors and other sectors can pay without the loss of jobs. So there's a huge gap Uh, that we need to, over time, uh, uh, close. Because I think everybody would agree that if you're out working uh, eight hours a day, 40 hours a week, uh, you should at least take home enough money uh, that will provide you with a, a minimum living standard.
0: Now, when we say, as you say, the basic living wage as opposed to the basic minimum wage, and the minimum wage is that statutory obligation, as you've said, but it doesn't even take into account young people who are even under the basic minimum wage. You can get away with paying them as little as 6.86 an hour. I often think that's very unfair if they do the same work in that shop or restaurant that somebody over 18 is doing.
2: That's correct. Um, and to just let uh, uh, listeners know, if you are uh, under the age of uh, uh, 18, uh, you paid 686. If you are 18 years old, you're paid a little bit higher. If you're 19 years old, you're paid a little bit higher still. It's only when you reach the age of 20. That you get the full minimum wage, which for instance is 980. And as you say, uh, what difference does it make whether you're 19 or 20 if you're doing the same work? Uh, whether that's in, you know, whether you're working at a cash register, whether you're serving people in a restaurant, or you might be working in a secretarial or clerical type of occupation. Uh, there's a number of countries that have statutory minimum wages. But there's, there are minimum wages for everybody who works. Uh, they don't have these uh, gradations of, you know, for those for young people.
0: And do you think it's a cop-out to allow young people be paid less for doing the same work?
2: Well, I don't know if it's a cop-out, I just think it's very unfair. The reasoning behind it is, uh, as, I, as I understand, the reasoning behind it is that uh, uh, this is allowing people, it doesn't want to uh, incentivize young people to stay in work rather than to go on to higher education. But, you know, there's never really been any assessment of whether that has an impact. I'm not sure that an extra euro an hour uh, uh, would mean that a young person who wanted to go on to higher education says, oh, well, no, I'm making a euro an hour more. I, I won't. I don't think that's the motivation. So it's hard to uh, understand why there are these uh, low rate, lower rates uh, as you say, sub-rates of minimum wage for young people.
0: Now, the Low Pay Commission, it makes its recommendations every year in July and then the decision is made by government and then it is Im- impacted in the budget in October. So will we see this increase definitely coming in and is there any capacity for even a, a greater increase or has that been agreed?
2: No, I mean, the, it, it, the government will uh, uh, introduce it. Uh, the, the Low Pay Commission has been making recommendations since 2015. And the government just uh, adopts it. And in fact, as you say, the Taoiseach has said, uh, has referenced the breaking of the what he calls the psychological barrier of 10 euros. So the government will adopt that, and it's unlikely, highly unlikely, that there will be any move uh, uh, in the doll to uh, try to push that higher. It's, it's pretty much a fait accompli when the Low-Pay Commission recommends it, because don't forget the Low-Pay Commission is made up of representatives of employers and employees, and, of course, they have uh, uh, expert advice from academics. So it's seen as a con- uh, uh, a... A figure that is achieved by consensus.
0: And as we said earlier at least it is something and it is a move in the, in the right direction. Tell me about the uh, technical group that you work with within SIPTU. I know you're a researcher and a member of the Living Rage technical group. What kind of work do you do and what, what, what are you recommending going forward?
2: Well the Living Rage technical group is made up of a, a number of uh, uh, academics uh, uh, people from uh, NGOs such as Social Justice Ireland and, uh, and the Vincentians, uh, and trade unions, uh, SIPTU, uh the union I work for, being uh, one of them. And every year what the Living Wage Technical Group does is they take the data that is compiled by the Vincentian Partnership for Social Justice. They are the ones that compile what exactly is the level of expenditure that's needed Uh, to have this minimum essential living standard. And they price over 2,000 goods and services throughout the country. And then they compile that. The Living Wage Technic Group looks at this data with a particular perspective on those in work, because the minimum uh, standard of living is both for people in work and on social protection. So we look at the, the data, look at trends, especially, for instance, in housing, because that's that, that changes quite significantly. Most items don't change from year to year, not in any significant way, because we're in a low inflation period. Housing, of course, is different. I mean, that's, that's just rising dramatically. And then on that basis, we calculate... What a living wage should be, and you have uh, calculated
0: that at twelve thirty, we now know that the basic minimum wage is going to rise to ten ten an hour. That leaves a gap of two euro twenty per hour in what you estimate it's necessary yeah. to live on. Finally, what is the impact on those people on that lower wage of that gap?
2: Well, I mean, quite simply, uh, uh, they uh, they don't ha- they ha- cannot achieve an essential living standard, uh, you will find uh, people, for instance, in Dublin, 50% of the living wage goes on housing. Uh, so people are paying rents but having to make sacrifices in other areas. So they're having to make sacrifices on their food bill uh, uh, or, or uh, you know, uh, uh, personal, personal care products, uh, a number of other items. So what happens with people in that gap? And that's a substantial number of people. Uh, uh, Can you give a figure a, or an estimate? Well, unfortunately, we don't have a direct estimate for um, uh, people on, for, for the living wage. What we do have an estimate for is the low pay threshold, which is probably around the living wage. And there's nearly 400,000 people below the low pay threshold. So if you consider that there's 137,000 on the minimum wage, and uh, there's probably another two hundred and eight two hundred seventy thousand that's in that gap and essentially what it means is that uh... for them to uh... uh you know to exist from day to day they have to make sacrifices in their living standards. A and lot no of, a lot of
0: struggling make- going on in there in the squeezed middle, as they say. Michael Taft, thank you very much for joining us today. SIPTA researcher and member of the Living Wage Technical Group. And that's something obviously we'll be hearing more about in the future. Now, there's been a minor drop in the annual cost of running a car for the average family. But don't go planning that extra holiday just yet. It's only by about €100. Euro. It still costs €10,593 a year to... To run a car according to the AA and while a 7% drop in insurance costs might be welcome the battle in insurance prices is far from over and joining us now to discuss it is uh, Barry Aldworth from the AA. Good morning Barry.
3: Good morning Orla, how are you?
0: I'm good thank you. Barry, how are these figures calculated first of all?
3: Uh, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a holistic calculation that we carry out based on a number of factors. We take into account everything from your typical insurance premium, the effect of inflation on that, even the depreciation of your car. So when you drive it off the lot from when you first bought it, it's going to start to lose value. Even we calculate the interest that you could have earned if you'd left the money that you spend on your car sitting in your bank account, your garaging, your parking cost, your motor tax, your NCT, everything that goes into your car to keep it running, we we incorporate that into these calculations. And then when you when you take a step back, I think when people first hear this figure of just over €10,500, Euro, they might be a bit surprised by it. But when you take a step back and consider everything that goes into keeping your car on the road it does add up very quickly.
0: Well, if you heard the tail end of our last interview there, you'll have heard about what we were calling there the squeezed middle people who are on um, maybe higher than the basic minimum wage, but actually still quite low paid and struggling 400000 And you just wonder, how can people possibly afford to run a car at 10500 a year? It's an awful lot, isn't it?
3: It's an awful lot. And I think some people will find themselves coming in under that cost. Some people will find themselves coming in over that average But again it does come back to i suppose a broader debate around particularly public transport options for rural ireland so there's a lot of people out there if they're living outside of a city or they're working outside of a city the only option they have at the moment to get to and from work is the private car now if you look at built-up city areas we we can see that where you provide people with alternatives to the private car They're more than willing to use them. But the problem is, if you don't provide people with the alternative, they're forced to rely on their car and then they find themselves paying sums that realistically I think a lot of families out there would prefer to be spending on other things.
0: Now, we've also um, touched on the drop in insurance prices, a 7% drop you've calculated. But anecdotally, that wouldn't be the case. I mean, if you're to listen to any of your friends, family, neighbours, they will all tell you my insurance keeps going up and up.
3: Yeah. So again, it's, it's a CSO figure. So the CSO tracks insurance prices on a monthly basis and a yearly basis as part of their consumer price index. And they've reported this decrease of 7% year on year. But again, A, that's only an average. It's not going to apply to everyone. And B, it probably only applies to your mainstream risk. So if you have a driver history that deviates anywhere from the normal you're probably thinking a 7% drop, I wish. So, for example, you're a young driver, you've had a claim in the past, or you're a returning immigrant. Those That cohort, they are still being hit very hard. And again, even when we talk about a 7% drop, you have to put that in the context of the increases that people would have seen from 2015 onwards, which far outstrip a 7% drop within the last 12 months.
0: What kind of a cost are we looking at now for a young driver getting started? Um, what would be the average, do you know that figure, what would the average insurance be now for your average 21-year-old young person starting out?
3: Unfortunately, it's not an average figure that we have. It's going to vary based on a variety of factors. So again, it's going to be very individualised insurance premium to calculate based on a range of factors. So it's tough to put any kind of exact figure on it. But again, what we do know, and we speak to young drivers regularly and we survey our own car insurance customers regularly, we do know that young drivers are really feeling the pinch and it's not going that news isn't going to come as a surprise to anyone who, who knows a young driver or has someone who is trying to learn in their family. And again, it puts people in that really difficult position where you have a lot of people who need a car to get to and from college or need a car to get to and from a part-time job and then they are faced with quite ex- well, quite significant insurance costs as well as the significant costs that come with learning to drive. So it is a figure that adds up very quickly for young drivers, and I think it comes back to the broader debate around motor insurance. Some people might look at that 7% drop and think, you know, yeah, we're making progress, but realistically the progress in tackling insurance prices has been far too slow. We need more done on that, and I think if we can start to see more progress for the mainstream risk, you will also see that trickle out into those Broader groups like young drivers or returning immigrants, but realistically, it's a battle far from won yet.
0: And I think we've uh, we're all well aware of that the spat that's going on in the insurance industry between uh, where is is the price increase coming from? Is it coming from the claims being made in court, or is it coming from the insurance company making um, extortionate profits? I think we've that's well covered on the media this morning. Is probably not your specific area, but in, in terms of the research that you do, is there any light at the end of the tunnel for the average motorist in terms of what you're seeing the trends emerging
3: it's tough to say i mean we we do see a small drop this year but it's just that it's a small drop and i think realistically until we get a handle on the insurance crisis it's it's at best going to be a case of minor drops we will see and again factors that go into this this decrease that we're reporting this year it also includes a drop in fuel prices based on a 12 month average so again, that's not exactly something motorists can rely on. We could be sitting here in 12 months' time talking about a very different story. So it comes back to, I think, right now we need to see more action in tackling insurance prices so that this overall figure can come down in a more consistent and a more to-be-celebrated level. But I think realistically, we also would urge governments to start spending the revenue that they get from these motorists a bit more wisely. So if you look at our... At the average cost of a litre of fuel, about 60% of that is made up of taxation. You also have other taxes that are that are imposed on motorists. I think we now know that, look, government isn't going to lower the tax on fuel anytime soon if ever... But what they can do is start investing that money a bit more wisely, provide people with alternatives to the private car, and I think if they do that, by and large, people will choose to use them. I don't think anyone has a has a love of sitting in rough, rush hour traffic in the morning. I don't think anyone really wants to be spending ten and a half grand on their car when an alternative may suit them better. So,
0: indeed. Indeed and well said there uh, Barry Aldworth from AA Thank you for joining us this morning Who wants to sit in long hours in their car If you can possibly help us Coming up next on the programme Are beaches here in East Meath And how we use them Um, We'll take a break Michael, Michael Reed Reid on, on LMFM. LLFM. Now, the beaches of East Meath, Laytown, Bettystown and Mornington are in the news again this week with the proposed changes to the foreshore bylaws, which may mean restrictions imposed on users. That's you and me, folks, after the lovely weekend. So if you were walking your dog on the beach, enjoying it, or parking your car with the family and having that picnic, or indeed riding a horse, you need to know how the restrictions will affect you. And here to tell us more is Councillor Sharon Tolan. Good morning, Sharon. Good Thank morning, you for Marla. joining us. Now, this is one of those issues that people are going to really come down one side or other on, particularly as regards the dogs. Absolutely. Because yeah. we all love to walk our dogs on the beach. And, you know, we, we try to be responsible dog owners. We keep them on the lead. We let them off at a certain point to give them their run. But that's the thing that's going to be changing, is yeah, it?
4: Absolutely. The the new um, amend- proposed amendments to the foreshore bylaws will require that people have their dogs on leads at all times, 24-7, 12 months of the year. Um, and I just feel that it is unfair and over-restrictive. I mean, We have many, many people who are responsible dog owners who live along the the East Mead coastline there, you know, or travel to our beaches because of of the freedom that their animal has. And they are responsible dog owners. They clip the dog back on the lead when somebody's coming or there's children in the area. They pick up their dog dirt. Um, We do, of course, have irresponsible dog owners, too. But there is a bylaw already in place that would protect them if it was enforced. Uh, The current bylaw states that all dogs must be under control of the owner at the moment. It's not being enforced, Orla, as far as I'm concerned. And if that was enforced, the responsible dog owners would be allowed to have their dogs off the lead and clip them
0: back on when required. And do you believe the way that is worded, under the control of the owner, Mm -hmm. is open to the owner to be an adult and look after their dog in the correct way?
4: Well, if you have an animal that you know you have control over, that have have a good response to your recall, you know that they will come back when called. Um, When somebody approaches, I often clip my little one down. She's only a chihuahua, but by God, she can run a big dog away. Mm. Uh, But I will clip her back on if I see children in the area. Um, Quite often, children will want to pet my dog because she's quite cute and small. Um, And so I allow them, I teach them, I show them how to do it from the front, you know, and and gently. Um, And I think it's about, you know, educating dog owners uh, to be responsible um, but it's unfair I think to punish responsible dog owners out there along the east coastline um by by ensuring that leashes are on all the time. It's just unfair.
0: I have to come clean and say it's hard for me to argue with you because I'm a responsible dog owner. Mm. I have three dogs and like you I would let them off, bring them back, let yeah. them off, bring them back. Yeah. And, I've, I, and I have to say my own experience of walking on the beaches and I walk on them quite often. Mm. I have seen so many responsible dog owners call their dogs back pick up the poop I can't recall seeing one cause a problem but that's only just my experience I I am quite sure there are people who are afraid of dogs or who have had a problem on the beach
4: Absolutely Well I I met a lady actually on Friday I was out, out walking my dog early in the morning met a lady with two dogs she had them off the lead she clipped them both back on the lead as she was approaching me We stopped and had a brief chat about the proposed changes and she said she had actually had an accident where a a large dog had had bumped into her and she required surgery, but she still would not. That was an irresponsible dog owner. Um, who had that dog off the lead and, and should have had accident. and caused the accident. Uh, her two dogs don't and she still would would be opposed despite the fact that she herself was in an accident. Mm. She still would be opposed to having dogs on leads at all times. It's unfair. I, you know, and it, it's such a joy to see a dog getting that type of exercise, particularly large working breed dogs. And allowing the dog run into the
0: sea. How would oh, you do look, that? Exactly. And throwing
4: a stick for them or a ball mm. into the sea mm. and you see them swimming and, and, and jumping out. You know, the other issue, I suppose, is in relation to the environment and certainly Mead County Council will say that our Natura impact statement required uh, restrictions. However, my point would be that we, um, the the National Parks and Wildlife Data: The current data show that our feeding birds have increased significantly over the last number of years on the the east coast there and of Bettystown, Layton, Mornington, and Gormanston. Um, so the current bylaws, you know, are, are not causing an what issue. What
0: stage is it at, and when is this vote happening? Or, or well,
4: uh, I would imagine it will either be at the September meeting or the October meeting. It all depends. I'm waiting this morning to find out if they advertised in the new newspapers um, today. And what is the
0: divide like in the council at the moment? On I, F- it's, it's very
4: difficult to know because we've lots of new colleagues. Um, I'm certainly missing Emer Ferguson would have been 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 another beach lover, Supporter, a dog walker yeah. uh, uh, out there as well. So I am calling on the public to get involved, make your submissions, contact your local councillor. All 40 of us will have to vote on and this and let them know, which, and way let you're them going know on which way. But at the end of the day, if we do this, what we will do is we will drive people who are responsible dog owners, into the dunes, which is worse for the environment. Absolutely. It's worse for the birds Absolutely. because people will walk their dog up there. It's not, it's not enforceable. Orla like, is, is the bottom line. Speaking of driving
0: range? into the dunes there's two other aspects to the changes and one is the use of horses on the beach now it has always been the case that horses have to be off the beach before 11, Eleven. o'clock exactly. but there's now some issue of not allowing horses go through the dunes and how yeah. can they get onto the beach if they don't go through the dunes exactly. there at, at, Mornington. at Mornington and, and the also other issue I want to talk oh, to yeah. is par- about parking yeah. so talk to me about the horses first
4: Well yeah they're the, the, um, part of the proposed amendments as well are to restrict horses not allow them at all through the dunes at Mornington to access the beach and also um, to restrict them for seven months of the year from September to March um, down at Laytown. Which is a big, big issue for people. Um, again, we have a number of stables in the Julianstown we have a big area, big racing
0: industry, Big late racing town races, industry, late town and you
4: know a fantastic record nationally for training and breeding horses in this county. Um, so it's going to be a big issue. And again, I would say if we look at the data there, we look at the National Parks and Wildlife uh, reports. Our birding, our birds are increasing
0: along the coastline, so the, the horses are not causing an issue. You know, and in fact, there's a wider path from the car park in Mornington through to the beach, which is yeah. specifically used
5: by and most the horses. horses exactly. And yeah. you will
0: see the racehorses and the sport horse owners taking using that track responsibly, using
5: the exactly. track. They don't go through the yeah,
4: dunes.
0: exactly. I mean, we we currently
4: this morning uh, have an encampment out there um of people camping, um, lighting fires. That's all. Illegal. That's part of our current foreshore bylaws. Um, we have a, a bath this morning, I've reported, a jacuzzi bath that has been dumped in the middle of the Mornington Dunes uh, this weekend by somebody. Um, and, uh, you know, it, there, there's a lot more going on, and it's not animals that are causing the issues as far as I'm concerned. It is not the horses horse and the horse dung
0: is not really going to do as much damage as a large bath no, sitting no, in the dunes. No, it would probably, probably improve the marram
4: grass. I know up in Benone. myself and Emer Ferguson took a, a visit up to um, a beach in Benone and Derry and they have a blue flag for many, many years um, and they would actually bring in cattle to, to uh, graze and uh, everything else along their dunes to, to
0: regenerate and, and uh, help them. Yeah. And then the final issue, parking. Obviously, on a lovely day like yesterday, Betty's Town, you drive in, you reverse back and there's the line of cars. I know there is the signpost and there's the issue, but not going beyond it because your car will get stranded. But what is the issue regarding parking there, the are no, there are facing no facing the beach.
4: There are no proposed changes in these foreshore for bylaws in relation to parking. Uh, the recommendation in our beach management plan, which we adopted back in February, does suggest that there will be a phased removal of cars from the beach, but only when appropriate car parking is available in the area. So there is no change in these foreshore bylaws uh, this time around in relation to cars on the beach. Um, it is unfortunate Saturday evening we had uh, a young gentleman who decided at five o'clock in the evening to drive up and down doing donuts and stuff like that. But I have to say the response from the guardie in most incidents, incidents are very, very quick and we have had a number of convictions in relation to, to illegal um driving on the beach I as know there were. are a
0: lot of people who are very principled about not parking on the beach. Yeah. They will drive up and down on the main street and find a parking spot yeah. rather than park on the beach because they yeah. just don't believe in it yeah. and there are people who say no, it's doing no harm, they're just mm. parking facing the sea. So again it's one of those divisive issues and people it are is. going to come down on one side it or another. It is
4: and I, you know particularly for people maybe who are elderly or with a disability, you know there, we will have to find solutions for those people. We will be providing in our new uh, beach buildings um, that we have um, appointed the architects for, we will be providing beach wheelchairs and uh, a disability changing area and toilets. Uh, so we will need to look at uh, solutions in relation to, to um, the elderly and people with disabilities on the beach if or when we do manage to phase out par- parking. There are there's five acres of car parking spaces currently under the Bettys Town Court development um not in use whatsoever. So I would call on Meath County Council to have a chat and see if we can try and get, particularly for our commuters, you know, a lot of our commuters are parking in the villages and blocking up the spaces uh, all day long when they're hopping on the bus or, or the train. So the
0: car issue is not going to be an immediate one no. because the changes are not going to happen, but mm-hmm. the changes to the use by horses and dogs may yeah. happen very quickly and people will have their and strong views on yeah, those. Yeah, and
4: there'll be a complete ban on sulkeys. You Sulkies, know, the, the, yeah, yeah. the
0: horse and carts. Yeah. That's a all complete right. ban proposed. Well, thank you, Councillor Sharon Keoghan for Sharon Tolan, for joining us today. And uh, please do, as Sharon said, make your views known to your local councillor because they will be voting on this in September. And do let us know your views as well. You can text us on 086 1800 658 or use WhatsApp and our producer Marie and Maggie will pick up those texts and let me know. Or you can phone us on one eight five We'll take a break. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Still to come in the programme, what the Green Party is planning on doing next and the financial pressures that can cause delayed uh, retirement. But first... Fianna Fáil councillor Liam Riley was re-elected as Cahirlach of Louth County Council last month. The St Mary's College teacher retained his seat on the council in the local elections, despite running in Dundalk South rather than RD due to uh, boundary changes. He was first co-opted to the council in 2008 and re-elected in 2009 and in subsequent elections. And he joins us now to tell us about the challenges facing him on the term ahead not least of which was losing his last here uh, luck so suddenly last week Councillor Oliver Tully a very big shock to you Councillor Riley.
1: Good morning Orlean good morning to your listeners yes uh, a big shock I mean Oliver was a long time member of the, the local authority 28 years elected uh, top in the poll just six weeks ago um, a family friend I would have had a lot of contact with Oliver over the last 11 years since I was elected myself and indeed my father for the 17 before that so it was a great loss great loss to his, his family Eileen and his children and grandchildren but also the, the wider Balthier Sanford and Termonfeckin community and indeed And I gather a huge
0: funeral on uh, Saturday
1: A massive funeral and a great tribute to him um, and we led out with a guard of honour um, as you would from the local authority members here in the County Council and the Borough Council
0: So tell me now um, as a chair again coming in how, how do the elections for the chair work? Take us behind the scenes
1: elections that share work that um, different groupings, um, you have obviously the various political parties and the independent grouping then come together to look at what we can do in order to create stability for the next five years and Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, Labour and a number of independents came together to form that uh, a number of weeks ago after the election. You can't do that until people are elected.
0: So you firstly get elected within your own party group
1: Yes, or your own uh, electoral area. It all depends then on how many numbers are elected back to the chamber.
0: And then you negotiate with the other parties then. Is, is that how it works? Yeah. Yeah. So tell me, within the Fianna Fáil group, uh, what are the plans? You're now at a strength of seven. You have some new uh, some new councillors, Aaron McGee and Sean Kelly, John Sheridan. Um, has it been good for the party? How, how, is that, how has it been progressing?
1: Yeah, it's great for the party. We're quite a, a young party. Uh, James Byrne was elected there. The three you mentioned, plus James Byrne, were all first-time elected to the, uh, to the local authority. Myself and Emma Coffey were returned, um, and Conor Keelan was returned as well. So it was seven of us all together, um, probably, I think, maybe the oldest as well. Um, I'm the, the longest serving, and I've only done 11 years, so it's quite a young and dynamic group. Um, and we're going to work hard for the next five years to create a, a better environment uh, for the for the people who have elected us over the next five years, where possible.
0: And is there a mentoring system now, for example, with new um, counsellors coming on board like that? I'm sure there, there must be such a steep learning curve. It must be such a minefield. Do those of you who are more seasoned, do you reach out to them? Do you mentor them? Do you try to help them along the way?
1: Yeah, we, we meet on a, on a monthly basis before the meeting as well. We go through the agenda uh, and that's one part of it. And then we have a WhatsApp group which we keep in contact. The event comes up that others may not be aware of. We will discuss that as well and make sure that that the four new members, particularly, because I was that soldier at one time, uh, get to understand the process. And, and when you've done a year in the council, everything becomes then kind of more normalised. You've seen things once before, um, and it just doesn't work within the party. The likes of the late Oliver Tully would have done that for me as well as a seasoned councillor. He gives support, regardless of political affiliation or geographical area, he gives support to each other because we're all working for the betterment of the county.
0: Now, you've said one of the key things you want to work on is increased community involvement. What exactly does that mean? What does that look like?
1: Yeah, uh, Lyad has a strong tradition of volunteerism. Um, the FLA, I suppose, uh, last year showed us that of how well we can work as a county. Um, the Lyad Volunteer Centre as well, which is one of the best-run and best and most active volunteer centres. So we're trying to encourage volunteerism. I'm a volunteer for the last 20, 30 years. Uh, my own local community. And I think if everybody was to step up to the mark and give five, ten minutes or an hour a week, local communities or our environment would be much better, better placed. Uh, what
0: kind of things did you volunteer mm-hmm. in yourself?
1: Uh, Tye Towns. I'm a Thai Tens volunteer for the best part of 20, 20 years this stage. So I'm a secretary of my own to Titans and, and a member of La- Tye Titans together. So I do my letter picks, do the work sessions, weeding, well, watering plants and fundraising, uh, basically to, just to improve my own local community and I would be a, an active member of St. Paul for the past 20 years as well, give or take um, just to give back something to community so we're trying to encourage that um, I'm going to volunteer for the flag this year if possible as well, um, so that basically we can give something back to the local community
0: I gather that um, a lot of local councillors do a lot of very hands-on active work like that. I mean, people mightn't realise that they think it's all the work you do in the chamber. But I know... um, uh, Oliver Tully, um, rest in peace Oliver, but I know he actually his incident occurred while he was in the middle of doing a litter pick-up um, yeah. Councillor Sharon Togan or Sharon uh, Tolan was on with us this morning and I see her out on the beach regularly picking up the litter so it's it's more a case of doing it by or leading by example, isn't it? Absolutely,
1: yeah, I mean Look, we can come into the chamber and give out about various things or give out about the council or give out about what's not happening on the ground. But if we don't quit ourselves and do something and show initiative, then we don't really have the the, the right to come in and give out. So I do think it's it's, um, it's inherent in every councillor to come in and lead by example.
0: And what kind of community um, organisations, other than the ones you've already mentioned, are actively looking for volunteers right at the moment in County Louth?
1: The best list or to be, would be the Volunteer Centre, their website. There's various organisations, charitable organisations, voluntary groups, um, all looking for volunteers. I mean, the FLA is probably the one that the council will lead on the most this year because has the most significant impact for the county. But there's the Volunteer Centre, have lists and lists and lists up on the website. So I encourage any member to go to the volunteer, any listener to go to the volunteer, Loud Volunteer Centre, website or indeed the local authority website maybe redirected to it.
0: And do you recommend that people get involved in something that they're already interested in? Like as Absolutely. something obviously called you to the Tidy Towns initially, it was something yeah. obviously that you were concerned yeah. about the environment or something like that?
1: Uh, well, my late father was involved in it and I by, by default got involved in that as well and, and yeah, it's, the environment it's about local community, it's about inclusion um, and just was making, making the, the, the environment and not just the, I mean, the wider environment but just the local community a better place like People wouldn't realise it, but I suppose in my own local parish, we would raise in excess of 10000 a year uh, and, and spend it again on the local community just to make it pretty and inviting for those who are visiting or vi- living there as well. So it takes a lot of time and effort, but it's, it's very rewarding.
0: Now, you mentioned your late father, um, Councillor Tommy Riley, and obviously he served two ter- uh, terms as chair on, on different occasions. Is that a pressure on you? Do you feel you have a lot to live up to now as Cahirlock?
1: Um, it's it's an honour, certainly. It's certainly an honour. Uh, there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of responsibility, but I mean, it's a one year as well, and and people will get the opportunity to come in over the next number of years in this this term and the next term as well. It's a lovely honour to have, but I've done it once before last year, so it's great that this year I I understand what's to happen over the next couple of years.
0: And what are your particular goals for the year? Are, are there are there particular things you would like to say at the end of the year? Well, look, I achieved that.
1: Well, I mean, the housing and the housing maintenance, I know Councillor Paul Bell was on, on it this morning as well, and we're trying to sort that out and looking at innovative ways, um, and we haven't discu- started that process of discussion yet, but to do that for uh, the housing budget here in the local authority. Brexit is also a significant impact that we'll have on our county, so we've already started that process last year. We had various workshops and it was conferences organised by the local authority and the Leo office in relation to Brexit. And uh, We've had two of our MPs in, now returned to the European Parliament, we we'll would have them back in again, looking at how we will be affected and what we can do as a local authority to prepare for Brexit.
0: Those LEO yeah. offices you mentioned, that's advisory workshops for people who might yeah. be impacted, say yeah. businesses or, or community groups yeah. or whatever. Yes, yeah. yeah. So that work is all underway.
1: Absolutely.
0: All right. Well, Fianna Fáil Councillor Liam Riley, we wish you every success in your term of office as Cahir, Luck uh, forthcoming Loud County Council. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll take a break. Michael,
4: Michael Reid on, on LMFM.
0: FM. Welcome back. Now we're joined in studio by producer Marie Kearns with your
5: comments. What have you got for us this morning, Lots Marie? Lots coming in this morning, Orla. Like good morning to everybody listening in. Uh, plenty of reaction to a whole range of topics first of all the interview at the top of the programme in relation to the minimum wage that proposal it's it's looking likely next year that it will increase by 30 cents an hour Well, Maureen from Drahada feels that this definitely needs to happen but she doesn't think that it's enough she says that it means that people will now be earning around 10 euro 10 an hour but it's estimated that the living wage should be 12 euro 30 so that still falls way short of that well she's absolutely correct and we did of course talk about you that did. big gap we did indeed uh, jim says easy knowing orla that the tds don't earn the minimum wage or else they would realize that 30 cents per hour increase is an absolute joke Walk, walk in my shoes, says Jim, and you know all about it. So there you I, go. I get
0: told that every day by my young
5: people who work at basic minimum wage. You try working for basic minimum wage, <laughs> mom. That's what they say to me. <laughs> uh, then moving on to in insurance costs, uh, just tying in with with that survey from aA uh, a listener says, um, like most people, Orla, I that most people I know, says this listener, have not seen uh, their insurance go down. Mine, in fact, went up this year, even though I've had no accidents, no penalty points and didn't change my car. So what's different? I just feel that it's a complete rip off and you never know from year to year what you're actually going to be charged.
0: And, and that's a great point because anecdotally that's the case and yet obviously the yes. statistics are showing a reduction and where that reduction is it, it's not exactly clear at the moment. No. Yes
5: and it's, it's what it's about 7% I think it's, it's not huge little. either. Yeah. yeah to the dogs on the beaches and there's a lot coming in in relation to this not surprisingly I suppose because so many people use the beaches don't they for that purposes around these parts Um, we had a call from uh, Sean and Navin and Sean says um, that he feels that there's so much that has to be done in relation to enforcement on our beaches and that it's not being monitored when you look at the amount of dumping that's going on people leaving the rubbish Behind uh, cars being burnt out, he says, fires going on at the beaches, gangs gathering, antisocial behaviour. The list goes on and on, and they want to target the dogs. <laughs> then another listener texts in Jim from Navin and says, I hope the council will press on and enforce dog regulations on local beaches. Dog litter is a health and environment issue. Dog owners should obey the law like everyone else. I think it's a bad example by a local councillor to ask for leniency to allow dogs run free on beaches. It's time to get real, says Jim. Well, I think, Jim, in fairness,
0: the councillor did not advocate job dogs running freely that she advocated responsible dog ownership which is allowing your dog for his little run and whistling him back
5: and only dogs that will come back. Isn't that the point that was made? That's right. Denise from Betty's Town says I fully agree with Councillor Sharon Tolan. If they enforced the current bylaws then anyone who doesn't have a dog under control would be punished for it. But of course, they are not enforcing what's already there. So why are they changing this? Good point. Uh, I walk my small dog on the beach, says Joe, and when there's nobody around, I let her off. And I don't see what the harm is. I feel it really is a disgrace that this is going to change. Where are you going to let dogs run freely if not on the beach when there's nobody around? And Joe makes the point that, OK, in hot weather, there's obviously loads of people on the beaches. But there's days you go to the beaches and there's hardly anybody else there. And most dog owners only let their dogs off on those occasions.
0: I I think you're right. There's plenty of days when the dog the beach is quite empty. It's yes. quite empty. You could be the only person or half a dozen people walking up and down. So yes, I, I mean that's that, that is a fair point.
5: Jane says, Unfortunately, Orla, you're always going to have a few people who spoil it for everyone else. I was out walking on the beach last year. A Doberman came towards us with no sign of the owner, was very aggressive. We got an awful shock trying to attack our dog. We have to lift the dog up. Honestly thought the dog was going to bite me, should have been muzzled and of course when the owner did come along wasn't a bit apologetic and that's what makes it ruins it for everybody else. Mm. And they're the kind of instances that we will hear about and they of
0: course are the ones that are going to cause yes, the problem. Yes, Yes,
5: Deirdre and Kells was a victim herself of a dog bite ended up having to have surgery so perhaps it comes as no surprise that Deirdre doesn't believe that dogs should be allowed off their leash at any times. She thinks I know it might seem harsh but it it's It's the only way that you know they're going to be fully under control and that's by having them on the lead, says Gerda. Well we're going to hear lots more about this one we the are. dogs on the beach because it is divisive and you, if you're a dog owner you're going to be on one side of the divide and if you're not you're going to be on the other side isn't that just it? That's it. James says why not get rid of the cars off the beach altogether? I feel they are ruining the beach the poor dogs aren't doing any harm but the cars are a real big issue I feel it's not safe to let children run around when you have cars taken off and arriving it's just not as safe as other beaches I
0: wonder, does he mean all cars or does he mean the cars doing the donuts as we heard earlier?
4: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already
5: hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync...
0: The cars quietly parked, but then, as he 's saying they 're driving and yeah, and no, I, I think he yeah, meant just cars. Yeah.
5: the maneuver is not yeah. necessarily being fast, but just yeah. that you know if you go to a beach where there 's no cars, you kind of can let your children run and make because sandcastles and run visibility. to the water and bring yeah. up the water you know do yeah, all their absolutely. little things, yeah. but when there are cars kind of pulling off and arriving, yeah. and as you say, reversing. You just can't relax the same way. Uh, Peter from Drogheda says, listening to the discussion about beaches, I know uh, all dogs in public places should be on a lead and certain breeds of dogs should be muzzled. And I haven't heard a thing about that yet, about the dogs that should be, you know, muzzled. I used to have a dog myself and I often brought the dog to the beach and I saw dogs being savaged by Bigger dogs who should have had their muzzles on and this is a huge problem. And again, nothing is being enforced in that area.
0: Just hold that thought, Maria. We'll probably come back to it because yes. I'm sure we'll have loads more comments on that one. But just want to move on to uh, concerns growing about financial pressure will lead people to delay their retirement. Research shows that only 32% of people would like to continue working beyond the age of 66. But as we know, pension changes mean that state support won't be accessed until the age of 67 from 2021 and rising to 68 after 2028. Now, it could be argued that we're healthier longer these days, but... but... But that's that's an issue. We're being joined now by uh, the CEO of Alone, Sean Moynihan. Good morning, Sean. Good morning. What has this research told us about what people want in their retirement years? Well, I tell
7: you, I suppose this research reaffirms government's own statistics, right? Which shows actually a lower number of people uh, not not wanting to work on around 25%. So somewhere in there is the truth of what the situation is. I suppose for a lot of people is the concern is, is that because we're concerned about paying for pensions, what we're doing is, is raising the pension age for everybody. And there's no element of choice in it. And there's no element of giving people enough time to have planned for these changes.
0: So obviously, the retirement age was 65. And yeah. I mean, some people like that, as you say, some people don't. I think very famously last year, um, one of the RTE reporters, David Davenpower, had to take his retirement at 65. And he famously went to the papers and said he did not want to retire. So obviously, it doesn't suit everybody. But at the same point, the point you're making, I think, with your research is that uh, this causes people to have to work longer if they don't choose to do so or if they have a health issue or whatever.
7: Exactly. So what you have as the situation is this. And look, there's wonderful uh, examples. David Davenport, Valerie Cox, who actually sued because That's they right. were forced to retire.
0: That's right. This is,
7: a, this is a story about choice. Some people are hugely healthy at 65, And have huge capacity still to contribute in the the workplace. But for some others, maybe the journey is a little bit different. 21% of over 65 have frailty issues. So for those people, maybe this isn't a choice. But yet, if the pension doesn't kick in, how do they live? And will they use up any resources or savings or pensions they have before they get the pension? And what does their old age look like? And so you,
0: you've described this decision by government as a blunt instrument. You mean that's that it's what I kind mean. of one so size imagine, fits all?
7: If you imagine on one side, you have your David Davin Powers and your Valerie Cox is really healthy. I think are people who should be allowed to work on. And then you might have somebody else who at 65 has health issues. And around 60, I think it's 60% of over 60s have a chronic health condition. So maybe they, they don't have this choice. But what happens to them if the pension age, which it is, it's rising to 67 in 2021 and 68 in 2028. And it's rising much quicker than, say, our partners in the UK, where it won't go to to, to 68 till, till the 2040s or 2050s. So I think it's just too simplistic just to raise it. And what you have to do is take into consideration choice, those who can work on and those who may have jobs where even if an employer re-engineers or is really generous around it, maybe have physical jobs, and maybe you know, you know, it's just not, not not feasible or not a choice. And then for others, maybe after fifty years of work. Maybe they just feel they've contributed and maybe their time has come to often volunteer and support other people and families in the community.
0: So do you believe, um, Sean Moynihan, that in situations such as the guards or teaching where people have those very classic and and well-established pensions, that an element of self-selection will come into it, that those who want to go will go earlier and those who feel comfortable to work on will work on?
7: I, I think that's what it should go, come down to. Those who want to go on, and it, as you say, it's somewhere between 25 and 30% only who want to go on. And even within that group, some people want to do part-time. So those who want to should go on. But for those who really, for and it, may not, it could be for health issues, feel that they can't go on, they should be able to retire rather than have a situation that we keep moving out the retirement age. And people are already talking about 70 You know, and and, and I think everybody knows that some people won't be able to do that. And the other thing that there is a consequence is a huge amount of retired people are volunteering around. Over half of them are volunteering in their community. Huge amount of older people support with grandchildren, child caring. So there's also a social problem if a load of people actually don't retire who, who are currently supporting the community.
0: Um, you touch on volunteering there, which we discussed earlier in the programme and the need for it. And also, as you say, childcare. And it's a huge factor nowadays because childcare is so, so expensive that grandchildren, grandchildren are minded by their grandparents in an awful lot of instance just to keep the whole family show on the road.
7: Absolutely. So there's huge consequences here. So this is why I say just raising the age is a blunt instrument. We have to consider all these things. We understand there's a certain financial element to the government, and it's, but it's not half as severe as people make it out. But there are other issues going on. So what we have to do is bring in laws, regulations, things around choice that are a bit more sophisticated than just saying, let's just keep raising the age, regardless of people's wants, needs, consequences, or people's abilities.
0: All right. Uh, Sean Moynihan, CEO of Alone, thank you for joining us uh, this morning with that. Uh, that's a very interesting one and we didn't have time to discuss whether there are actually differences in the male-female uh uh, will or, or, or desire to work on, and, and that would be an interesting conversation to have another day. Back to you, um, Marie Kieran, here in studio with yes, more I'm comments gonna, then. I'm
5: going to finish off with one comment that came in towards the end of last week, Orly, because I thought it was a very valid point. We've covered on this show on numerous occasions complaints from people about able bodied uh, car users who park in disabled spaces. But we got a phone call in from Kira from head in County Meath, who says that her mum has a disability that's not obvious to see. So it's not obvious. If you see her physically, it wouldn't be obvious. But she has a valid disabled sticker because she has a disability and she gets awful abuse when she parks there uh, because people can't see the disability and they immediately say, what are you doing parking in this space? And Kira says she's been with her mum when this has happened and it's awful. And she is wondering... Is there a case to be made for having maybe coloured stickers you know so that for people maybe that have a disability that's not obvious that maybe they have a certain colour so people can say okay they still do have a disability uh, because she says it is something that needs to be addressed if you are given you know a valid ticket and your disability has been acknowledged it's, That's an, a really great point she makes the colour
0: stickers because yeah. actually people with heart conditions will often get a disability that's sticker right. because they just physically can't that's walk right. the distances and yes. you're right can they can end up getting abused there's a lot of of
5: disabilities that are invisible that's right that that's a good that's the perfect word for it. Yes. yes invisible so she just wanted to make that point because she feels sorry for her mom in that situation so thanks for the call on that and I think it will get people thinking a little bit all right well you know you
0: can keep those um calls coming on 1-850-715-958 or you can text us or whatsapp with your views on 86 eight658 thanks Marie Kearns for joining us in studio and we'll take a break Break.
4: Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM.
0: Now, still to come on the programme, the latest on the cervical check uh, scandal and the homeless crisis. But first, the Green Party had its annual convention over the weekend in Dublin and voted overwhelmingly against a motion which had been tabled to prevent a future coalition with Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael or any party whose policies and values were seen to be in conflict of those with the Green Party. So, in throwing out the motion very decisively, the members clearly wish to keep the option of a future role in government wide open. Interestingly, in the recent European elections, there was great spotlight on young members of the party, such as Serge McHugh, who came to so close to getting elected. And she has suggested this morning that the young green wave would be in danger of leaving the party again if there was such a coalition. And joining us now to discuss this and the convention at the weekend is Green Party leader Eamon Ryan. You're very welcome to the programme. Good morning, Orla. Between a rock and a hard
5: place?
8: It's always that way in politics. If it was easy, you know, if, if, if we all had a A a hold on wisdom where we were flatterably right—it would gotta be very easy. But no, there's always difficult choices, Um, and including that, you know, whether you. You might have, well firstly it's up to the electorate I mean to be honest you can debate all you like whether oh, would we go into government or not well you're first and foremost that's the Irish people decide that and uh, and you won't be anywhere near answering the question if if you don't uh, deserve a vote so
0: and unless so, you're given that option by the vote yeah
8: yeah so but if, if that does happen then uh, yes I think what our members said this weekend is is we should be open to talking to everyone and and I respect the alternative view, like there is, you know, kind of, it's not as if you've, as I said, you, you, you've a complete monopoly on wisdom, but um, I think what I said when I, when I stood up to, to, to talk on that motion was I think the scale of the change we need to make is so great and the urgency so strong that Uh, in tackling climate change and our biodiversity crisis, which is one of the reasons people vote for us. Um, That I think the answer to that has to involve everyone. We won't make it if we make it a divisive issue. If we start, well, well, we're not going to talk to you when actually we're going to need you to be part of the solution. So I think we're better off trying to lead uh, everyone in the in this direction, it doesn't belong to us as an issue. We have to show that it's going to make for a better Ireland. Um, and that was the main case. The last person who spoke again on the side of uh, looking at talking to everyone was our chairman, Roderick O'Gorman. And he said something very simple, but was quite strong. He says he didn't join the Green Party just to play it safe. Because, and he said like it would be lovely in some ways you kind of you kind of oh uh, Lord was it St Augustine's uh, uh, premise Lord, Lord may be virtuous but not quite yet not quite and, you yet know, exactly I'm exactly. willing to do something but but I'll hold off for a while but
0: people voted for you because they trusted you to do something about climate change and we saw so, that little upswing there as I mentioned Serge McHugh and other young people they want you to do something about climate change there's no doubt about that but would a coalition be actually breaking that trust?
8: Well, I think that's first and foremost up to the Irish people because, you know, they decide who, who their representatives are. And I think it's only after that that you can sit down. And I suppose I, I, I like living in the constitutional democratic republic we are in. I like the fact that we have a very... Rep- I mean, it's very different to Britain where, you know, you could have a majority in the House of Commons with only less than, only, you know, a third of the vote or less, which will probably happen after the next election there. Whereas in our case, the parliament, the Dáil, is very representative of the people by by numbers, in terms of each party is reasonably representative of the number of votes that they got. So to a certain extent, um, it, it, is tend- it is bringing us more towards coalition ranges. We're becoming more like those northern European countries, the likes of the Dutch and the Danes and all those Scandinavians. They have built up this coalition tradition of coalition over the years, and I think so are we now. And I think it actually—it's not easy. Um, it requires. It, maybe it's a slower process. You don't have as decisive government. You know, where the government has has a clear majority and, and just pushes through its its agenda. There is in in a coalition government, and and I was saying this on Saturday, you have this thing called collective cabinet responsibility, and that's important. You you have to work together as a team. You don't just run away to the media every day leaking stories and kind of for for your own benefit. But the other flip side of that coin is you also, if, if you accept collective responsibility, you also have collective cabinet authority. And that can be a difficult thing because it means you maybe have to get everyone on board before a decision is made.
0: But obviously, a level of authority, it's a seat at the table. And obviously, if you have a seat at the table, you feel you can make a difference. But how do you do that without letting down the people who put you there?
8: uh, Well, I suppose you have to, you know, you present yourself and uh, and we'll be presenting ourselves. It'll probably be within nine months. Um, It's clear what we'll be saying, that we want... Our, our, we will be open to talking to all parties with the view to trying to form a coalition. We won't do it. We'll, we'll be going with a fairly radical agenda because this change has to be significant quick. So it's not just tinkering at the edges. It's not just business as usual with a few little bits added on. And it is it very is.
0: much in the zeitgeist at the moment. You're in the right place it at is. the right time because it is very topical. But coalition hasn't been good to you before.
8: Well, I mean, we were in coalition last time. That's the only time we were in. It was in a very difficult time. I mean, we, we went into coalition when there was a banking bubble and a, and a house price bubble, which was going to blow up no matter what, no matter who was in government. Uh, I'll be honest, in that experience, it was very difficult in the Irish people. It was a very difficult time for, for everyone in the country. But I think we showed one thing. We didn't run away. We worked collectively as a team we got agreement, we kept going back to our democratic principles in terms of getting our party to kind of check and see this is what we're doing. It it was very, very difficult and lots of decisions that you'd never want to do.
0: But there were a number of things gotten wrong as well and I don't doubt any of the things you got right but you got things wrong as well. For example, Minister John Gormley, I remember making a sort of a point of targeting farmers over using used tyres to waste, weighed down their, their silage mounds and that really alienated the farmers which should be naturally in support of green and the environment because they live and work it every day of their lives.
8: I agree with you. And loads of mistakes. And hopefully you you try and learn from mistakes. And that basic point is is an absolutely valid one. I think actually we need to turn around this narrative about greens versus rural farmers because actually I think we're going to be allies in the coming years as we tackle this issue. Logically you should be
0: on the same side. When you think of the work being done by programmes like Origin Green and the farmers have embraced that so comprehensively.
8: Oh, no, indeed. And one of, the proje- one of the ideas I was putting out, and it was funny, it was, it w- I was um, talking to uh, Mike Fitzmaurice the other day about this, who we wouldn't be necessarily seen as kind of on a similar track, but we agreed on this. There was a project we were saying we should do, which is an environmental improvement scheme where you would go to every single Irish family farm, 120,000 farms, and you say, okay, to each of those farms, we want you to plant an acre of native woodland in the corners of those fields that you can't easily get at tractor machinery or other machinery anyway. And if we did that, it would, it, would plant, it would mean the planting of 120 million trees. It would have a significant effect in terms of storing carbon. It would provide shelter for our animals. It would provide a home for wildlife. And it would provide an income, a small income, but uh, it, rather than it just going to big industrial monoculture So you see it as a funded programme? Yes, it would go to every farm and you would have a much more attractive landscape and natural environment out of it. So it's those sort of very practical, very beneficial environmentally, but also beneficial in rural Ireland, that's the way forward. And I suppose particularly at a time with Brexit threatening the future of the Irish family farm, with Mercosur doing the same, and more importantly of that, with the current model being advanced by Fine Gael, which is kind of very good for big industrial farmers, but not for the smaller family farm. I think actually it's time for change, sure. and I think we should be at the centre of that, helping Irish farming become a viable future where young people go into it, rather than being seen. Well, as hopefully
0: the, the farmers will listen to you. Finally, you've you had some success with forty nine councillors and two MEPs. What kind of success will you predict in the forthcoming election in terms of seats won?
8: What I've been saying we want is, is at least six, at least six seats, and for that's for, the target. Yeah, for for three reasons. With six, if you cover two ministers or three ministers each, you cover the whole of government. Secondly, it means roughly one in 20 Irish people are voting for you, so you've got a base. But thirdly, with six seats in the past, we've had two seats at Cabinet, and you need that to be able to work effectively, in my mind. So at least six and let's see what happens. It's up to the Arch electorate from here on in.
0: All right, Green Party leader Eamon Ryan. Uh, thank you for joining us today and hopefully the Green Wave, the young Green Wave, will stay with you and won't uh, take a hike if there's too much talk of a coalition. So, moving on. Um, is the cervical... Check screening programme fit for purpose. This is the question being posed again this morning following the news of a computer glitch which meant that the women at the centre of the programme were left out of the information loop yet again. Screening results were either delayed or not issued to up to 800 women and their GPs because of an IT issue at a US laboratory. There are mixed reports this morning as to when the HSE was actually informed of the issue. One paper saying it was as early as last February. Another saying that the HSE CEO Paul Reid was only made aware of the issue last week. And joining us now is People Before Profit TD Breed Smith. Thank you for joining us this morning. This is the latest in a litany of errors and confusion. Is there any confidence in the programme left at this stage?
9: Well, good morning to you and uh, thanks for having me on. Um, look, the, I think the, the, the real problem with the programme and I've repeatedly said it, is that it has been outsourced to private laboratories and it's a public health function, and an important public health function. And the decision to outsource it just 10 years ago has led, as we can see, to a litany of abuses and tragedies and um, failures and lies and misinformation to tens of thousands of women who must be very, very distressed about the outcome of the tests or, you know, not receiving the results of it. Uh, And at the end of the day, I think rather than just focusing on why did the HSE not do this and the HSE do that, I think we now need to focus on the heart of the problem, which is the fact that it is outsourced to private laboratories abroad and say to the Minister that it's now he needs to make a commitment to the people of this country, to the Irish health system, that he's determined to repatriate the service and he'll show that to us in evidence by working in a collaborative way to rebuild the programmes that used to exist on a big way in our universities and colleges uh, to educate and train a cohort of people here that were able to deal with cytology testing. What would be involved in
0: in repatriating the service? Um, It can't be that complicated, surely, to end one contract and start another. And we know there are local laboratories and universities, as you've said, who are well capable of doing this screening.
9: I don't think we have enough capacity in this country and the reason we don't have it is because we shut it down we made hundreds and hundreds of trained scientologists and laboratory technicians redundant 10 years ago or they were forced to move on to other work because the service was taken out of places like the coom and um, and the rotunda maternity hospitals who used to carry out the service lost a huge cohort of trained technicians um, and so we don't have the capacity to deal with it fully now But what I'm saying today is, does the Minister need more tragedies, more failures, more evidence that what should be happening is the repatriation of the service in full? So he needs to start now in collaboration with the rest of the cabinet and say, identify the need for education and facilities and training so that we do have a cohort of people here and the necessary uh, laboratories opened here to deal with it through the public health system. Now, if
0: if this has to be a phased repatriation, because as you've pointed out, we may not have the capacity at the moment, does that mean we're risking more of these kind of errors if this phasing back takes a number of years?
9: Well, I mean, I suppose it depends on how you manage it and how it's done. First of all, I mean, the, 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 the laboratory in question in this case had suffered the computer glitch and then failed to issue the manual letters to the GPs so that the information was got back to the women about their tests is Quest Diagnostics. And we have just renewed a major contract with them. Now, I know Dr. Scully did his thing in America and exam- examined what he had access to examine. But he he seemed to indicate to us, at least at the the Health Committee and uh, to those politicians who attended his briefings, that he had faith in the service. Um, I doubt if this morning he wakes up and, and his faith is still as strong as it was when he made that statement.
0: Now you've said, the, you've said the you've said the uh, contract has just been renewed. How long does that contract last for? The one that's just been issued to to Quest Diagnostics. I think
9: it's for the next four or five years. Oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah. I, I so I, that, I don't yeah. want to scare people, and obviously mm-hmm. I want, like every other politician will say, and I think it's the correct thing to say, women have to keep availing of the service because it's best to be screened. It's best to do bowel screening, breast screening, cervical screening, any kind of screening you can to try and catch the cancers early. And indeed, many of them are caught early uh, or, or, or don't manifest themselves as a result. But I do think that there's serious problems here and serious stress and serious delay. So if there was a political commitment made and a plan put in place, we're going to take this back. We're sick and tired of the private labs abroad making the bags of this. And we're going to ensure that we look after women's health. Now, there's a revamping of the HSE to be announced by the cabinet very soon. I think that that has to be in the mix. As a matter of urgency, that has to be in the mix. And where possible, work should be done at home under the control and the eye of the public health service yeah. There's a, a, than the private There's a system.
5: story
0: in the papers this morning about uh, sort of a reversal of where the HSE has been over the last 10 years back to a scenario where there was much more regional autonomy and gathering up the all of the services into these, these regions so it looks like there's it's a final understanding that the way this um, behemoth was working or not working yes. um, mm-hmm. has has been the case and, and maybe that will improve what we're talking about but like from your sort of Information, even speaking to your own constituents, are women still going for screening? Does anybody oh, actually are, yes. trust this?
9: In fact, I think that cervical the check themselves have said, have said that since the the the, the 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 sort of very public tragedies that we all know about of the women involved, for whom it didn't work out, there's been an increase in the amount of people seeking screening because they do acknowledge that it's a, it's a. It's necessary for And for do we know
0: what health. the instances of women seeking private screening actually asking to have their 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 results sent privately somewhere so that they will be guaranteed a quick result
9: To be very honest with you I don't know I'm not on the health committee in the Iraqtus but I am a women spokesperson for People Before Profit but I'm not on the health committee I'm not privy to all of the information that they get um, and it's it's a, a very sensible question one which I could ask but Look, even if you go private, my my point about private versus public is very simple. The labs in America are big industrialized type labs, which cut down on costs. When we first uh, outsourced to them, they weren't even ISO, which is an international standard of, of accreditation. They didn't even have that ISO stamping on it. They've only recently got it. Uh, subsequently, got
0: it. Well it seems um, extraordinary they got the contract in the first instance if that's the case. Absolutely, absolutely and
9: in fact when you look back at the history of cervical check and how the contracting out was done in the first contract I think the cost of it you know for the determination who gets it, the cost of it was about 20% of the overall contract and the next one was 40%. In other words that the government themselves were looking to cut costs
0: Yes, well, I think that's one that we will uh, is going to run and run. Uh, and thank you very much indeed. It's something we'll probably come back to again in, in not before long. But thank you very much for joining us today, uh, Breed Smith uh, thank TD. You. Michael Reid, Reid on LMFM. Now, earlier we spoke to uh, Councillor Liam Riley, who's the Cahirlook of Louth County Council, and now it's the turn of Meath County Council. And joining us today in studio is Councillor Wayne Harding, who's the new Cahirlook of Meath County Council. You're very welcome, good Wayne. Thank you for joining us today. Now, I know that one of your hopes for the coming year is greater cooperation between the and Town and Bettystown Municipal District and the Drogheda Municipal District, obviously for the good of the whole area. And I think we have to say there's been a historical kind of loud versus Mead and that has to end We've to get around a table, isn't that the point?
6: Absolutely and, and you're right, it's not just uh, greater cooperation, there's an instruction from the National Planning Framework and dropping right down to each um, dropping right down to each uh, development plan, right down to the Mead County Development Plan and a, and a local area plan for Drogheda and as of Thursday of last week, we gave the go ahead to the county managers, the CEs of Mead and Loud to sit down and start the process of adopting a local area plan for Drogheda. It makes perfect sense, it's the the right thing to do um, and and it has there is estates in the, in, and we're right beside Highlands which is in Mead as we sit here in LMFM and Riverbank across the road is in Loud so the cooperation is it's obvious and it has to happen.
0: It's obviously been something that um, we, we've been so um, integrated and enmeshed in certain ways and even with the, the coastline of East Mead and, and you know proximity is everything and yet there was this kind of great barrier and Chinese walls on either side of the Leeds mountain. Historically, how was that allowed to happen?
6: Uh, Well, I mean, the the, the town grew out um, across county boundaries and it's as simple as that. I mean, you're talking about walls. There are invisible walls in the estates around Johanna. Half of it's in Mead and half it's in loud and they feel left behind. And this is an attempt to to bring everything together to look at the town of Johada, and and we, we we would support the the city status that Anne McKenna has been has been and, and and people like that, but to grow it, and and not have to worry about the boundaries to grow Johada as as best we can, uh, with collaboration, and that's a directive that came down from the boundaries review. So we we have to go and do it under this legislation. So how does it work in in practice? How does it work? Well, <coughs> excuse me, we'll move now. The, the Mead County Development Plan has just started the process. It will Well, it will actually start in September. It'll take about a year and a half to uh, be fully adopted, so it'll be about September, October next year. And as part of that, there must be a local area plan, which is directed by, by government and central, um, uh, central ministerial offices um, to adopt a local area plan jointly between Mead and Loud for Drogheda. To move it forward, and that's that's really where we are at the moment we're at the, we're at the start of that process and it's and it's it's going to go ahead and who sits on
0: this working group to make this happen
6: well th- th- the start up now that's that's an interesting point you've made because um st- they there is legislation going through at the moment, but it has all the, as regards a, a joint urban committee which would may be made up of representatives from late and Androgheda. at the moment that that is not passed. But what is passed is the National Planning Framework and the um, Regional uh, Spatial Strategy, Economic Strategy, the RSES. And then it drops down to the Development Plan. In all of those statutory bodies, there is an onus on, on Mead and Loud to come up with a local area plan to jointly for Drogheda.
0: So do a number of councillors from each body sit on this committee
6: and start the work? At the moment, there will be, at the, moment the, the CEs are the first people to meet. They're going to be meeting shortly. And then councillors will meet, but as regards the statutory body, that's not set up yet, and the legislation is not there for it yet. So again, it's, th- it's just collaboration. So you don't really know
0: what format it's going to have Abs- in in the such a nitty gritty detail.
6: Not just yet, no. but
0: presumably the county managers, the county engineers will sit on on the on these committees, absolutely. and and a number of representatives. Yes, and you'll get around the table. Yes, but
6: there is an onus on us. to to create this local area plan in the legislation that it's already there. As regards that joint committee, the the legislation is not in place yet.
0: Will you get agreement when you get to that point, do you believe? Or will there be an element of grabbing it for me and grabbing it for you.
6: Well, I hope not. The old way of doing it. Yes, and I hope not. I think, it's, I think we, we need to work... Um, like, if you look at it, um, my child is leaving Slane School um, and coming into Drogheda in September. 19 of, of his classmates are going to St Oliver's next door to us as we speak. Like, the people of Mead have always been coming to school. And, I went to school in Drogheda. Um, I, I do understand what you're saying, historically, you know, that's mine and, and that that can't happen anymore. The town is getting too big. The population growth is going to be massive and we need to build proper structures in place to benefit everybody who uses the town of Drogheda, And the population they be from Loud or meat.
0: Indeed, and the population growth, I mean, a lot of it has been centred in East Meath, just geographically the way it is, and yet you would refer to Drogheda as your local town. So... That's yeah. it in a nutshell, isn't yeah, well, it? Brian, he knew who's come in
6: in Slane. Now we will be halfway between Navan and Drogheda, um, but to Dungarvan. All of those areas, would, would their town is Drogheda. Yeah. There's no question about that. And you are right about the explosion of growth in, in East Mead. That's true. And it goes right into Cope Cross and Grangerath and all those areas And there.
0: back to Laytown and Betty's Town. I'm right out street. to Laytown
6: and loops around yeah. to, to
0: where we were sitting. And that's where a huge uh, an amount of the most recent growth has been focused and centred. And those people are technically in East Mead, but Drogheda is their town. Yes. They get the train from Drogheda to Dublin if they're going to work or Dundalk yes. or wherever.
6: Yeah. And and the people the people of Drogheda who live in Mead would have an affili- affiliation with the town. But they're 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 Government offices or their, their local authority offices are in Avon.
0: Yes. So, in terms of your year as Kahirlik, and it's only a year now under the new system, what, what would you hope to achieve in terms of this and other plans you would have for your own year? What, yeah, well, what, I, well, I think at that's the end of a year, put it this way: if you said I had a great year, what would that look like?
6: Um, well, there's there's a couple of things. I, I, I named four actually in, in my acceptance speech when, and I was delighted that my fellow councillors voted me in to be Carhiriach. I'm ten years there now, and I haven't had this privilege and it it is a privilege I and mean, my kids are of a certain age now where they're, they're appreciating what it means and my little fellow was doing tallies. but I don't know if that's good or bad. I might, I'll ask for his forgiveness in future have, years. Have
0: they worn the necklace Yeah.
6: <laughs> no, no, no I, I'm not, allowed, not allowing them to do that. They have to earn it now. I'm kidding. Um, but I have four kind of pillars. Obviously, I think I'm, uh, people will be sick listening to me talking about slain bypass. And uh, that's something that is, is progressing very well, and there's a lot of work going on in it, and that will come back to the table and I want that to be as far on as possible it won't be built by, by the time I leave office, but I want the, the plans in place that' is well progressed the but it's safety measures
0: have worked I mean I know the accidents on it have decreased, but obviously a bypass would be the the, yeah, the they, ID. They,
6: and it, look it 's inarguable that the safety measures, but the safety measures have come at a massive price on a village. Do you know like it's, it's incredible. Uh, Structures put in place to calm down the traffic that passes through Slane every day. Do you know gantries, anti like you'd have anti? But if one
0: life is saved, isn't it worth it?
6: Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm not saying that, but but you, there, it's very hard to go about your daily life. Every child in Slane village must enter the N two to get to their national school. Every single child mm. and every every parent that is bringing them and they they drive to school because they're afraid of letting them walk. Um, and anything can happen, you know, at any stage. But you are, I can't argue that it has reduced. The fatalities, but but daily life in Slane is it's very tough. Like you're going across a six hundred year old bridge. Parts of it is six hundred years old. One way system on a national primary route. Do you know you go to Galway and on a on a national primary route and there's two dual carriageways either side. You go you go through Slane on a national primary route and you're going across a six hundred year old bridge.
0: It needs to be updated and your other pillars in the, um, left the And I
6: know you're, you you we're running out of time. Uh, the Bine Greenway and we have um the, the, it's going to the board now from Johada to, to the Beach at Bessie's but I would like to see it forwarded from the Battle of the Bind site right into Slane and Avon.
0: It's fabulous. It's such an amenity. It would be wonderful to see it extended. And
6: we have gone down and met um, with the Sea of uh, that was really well set up by our own Sea Jackie McGuire and our uh, Jackie McGuire and our uh, counterpart in Washford. And what the Washford Greenway has done has been extraordinary. But imagine that you could be walk, you could be walking, cycling, or taking a boat. By a world heritage site. That's nowhere else in the country. Incredible. And Incredible. and and, and I'd be quick now. In relation to housing, we have, a, we have a massive problem. And as that population grows, and it will grow, it's and and we've we've lost a bit of time because of the legislation that had to adopt the national planning framework. And I, I'm I'm really worried about how we'll keep up with the population growth and housing. It's it's a it's a ferocious problem that we need to tackle at a local level and build the houses quicker and faster and get them in there.
0: Housing is a huge issue, and we're actually coming to it next on the program. But in the meantime can we wish you every success in your years Kahir and thank you very much for coming in to see us here today on LMFM Councillor Wayne
6: Harding It was a complete pleasure thank you Thank you Michael Michael Reid on on LMFM
0: So we said we'd talk about homelessness briefly and today is the third anniversary of the government's rebuilding Ireland plan and the Simon community has marked the date with the release of some troubling figures they say there is a 66% increase in the last two years in the number of adults living in emergency accommodation for longer than six months and that the government must provide a major public housing programme to tackle the homeless crisis. And we heard a number of local representatives um, echo that uh, view this morning as well. We're joined now on the programme by Wayne Stanley of the Simon community. Uh, good morning, Wayne. Good morning. Now, I don't want to get bogged down in all the statistics, and I know you have a lot of them. I want to try and get to the underlying story, but which we all know about, of course, of the homelessness. But given the increase in homelessness since the rebuilding Ireland launch, which is, I think, from 6,000, 6,500 people roughly in July 16 to 10,000 in May 2019, 10,200. Something's not working here, is it?
10: Yeah, and that's what we've done. I mean, what we uh, did in the context of kind of uh, looking at uh, rebuilding Ireland as we come up to the the third anniversary, um, we wanted to take a step back and look at, okay, what's worked, what hasn't, and what can we do differently? um and i think we've we've had to accelerate that thinking because um we know that with the spectre of brexit in the background that the next budget is going to be a very tight budget and that, that dreaded phrase the, the fiscal space is going to be very tight.
0: And even if it's not tight it, there'll be an element of caution there'll be an element of having to keep money in reserve because none of us really know what the impact of Brexit will be so yeah. that in effect will reduce the, the available funding won't yeah. it? So
10: what what we did was and what we what we said previously is that Um, The government needs to keep going with the targets in rebuilding Ireland. But even there, there's some signs that maybe they're going to struggle to meet the current targets they have. But what can they do differently? So we wanted to look at what, in that context, what could they do differently? And So we set out two things that we think could have a, a significant impact and two things that could be done. And, and they are? And those are, firstly, uh, as you just mentioned, the rollout of 20,000 affordable cost rental uh, accommodation. And what they can do is utilise the infrastructure that, they've, that, that has been put in place under Rebuilding Ireland. So you know, the Land Development Agency has been launched. Um, our view is that it's too focused on trying to balance the housing market and restructure it. What it actually needs to do is make a significant intervention. So what that is, is 20,000 affordable cost rental accommodations by the end of the year to have earmarked the 300 plus hectares of land that's needed to develop that many uh, accommodation, to have planned them, to be saying, okay here's where we're going to be. Um, And then this can be funded using, uh, they've already in conversations with the European Investment Bank, there's the credit unions who are looking to invest, provide safe investments uh, for their funds as well. So that so they can utilise uh, some of that infrastructure that's already there to help develop those.
0: We might come back to that, but the yeah. second thing then and that the, you were suggesting... The yep. second
10: aspect of it is, uh, in the context now where we have one person, one adult in 14, who's on the social housing waiting list, is now in homeless emergency accommodation. And that's based on the government's own figures. It doesn't include uh, hidden homelessness. It doesn't include uh, those who've been counted as as own-door accommodation. So it's it's a minimum of one in 14. Uh, What we're saying is one of the things that the last government did, which was really effective, was that they introduced an allocation to uh, those who were in homelessness of 50% of all social housing that was to be allocated would be allocated to those individuals and families who are in homelessness. So what we're saying is, if we look at the growth in long-term homelessness, we need a a strategy that's going to attack that. And the Minister can, by executive order, say 50% must go to uh, those who are in long-term. So homes. that's
0: prioritising those in 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 yeah, long-term exactly. um, uh, emergency yeah. accommodation, and that can
10: yeah. be a, a time-limited intervention. While we get this, the cost rental and and those initiatives up and running, uh, the government still has great faith in in rebuilding Ireland. So if it is going to work, what we're doing for now is we're going to time-limited. Attack on long-term homelessness, and let's start getting those numbers down. And that's now, the kind both of, of those
0: measures you've described sound very practical, very reasonable. As you say, there could be funding there for them, but the machinery just seems to turn so slowly. Why do we not see change happening more effectively when there is so much will for it to be done?
10: Yeah, I mean that is a conversation that I have been having for a couple of years now around different agencies, uh, both state and NGO, is that everyone agrees that we need more public housing, but it just doesn't seem to be happening. So what are the blocks? I think part of it is, and what I think this uh, initiative would answer, is that one of the things that the state has been doing is looking at mechanisms to try and get developers to develop more. So they've been trying to make it cheaper, trying to uh, look at providing... um, help to buy schemes, low-cost loans to help people to, you know, increase the amount of money that they can get to purchase a home, which will encourage builders to build because there'll be a market there. Um, Those kind of things um, are, you know, we don't object to people. Home ownership is a good thing. We're not, not, we don't object to home ownership, but it's not the best option or even the optimal option for everybody. Um, So what we need to do is look at, okay, there's an affordability gap here um, that, in the context of a modern economy, we need to look at doing things differently. And Instead of the state saying to builders, "Oh, what can we do and trying to draw them in, what they can actually do is say, okay, we're going to make a substantive intervention. And then what will happen around that is uh, the uh, economic side of it is what will happen around it is it will cause um, those kind of agencies to innovate and do more. All right, Wayne
0: Stanley, a lot of creative thinking going on. Hopefully we will actually see some action and we'll see some of those measures you've outlined so well um, actually come into effect in the not too distant future. Wayne Stanley from the uh, Simon community, thank you for joining us today on that issue on homelessness and that's something obviously we'll be coming back to again and again. That's where we have to leave it for today. Thank you so much for your company. I've enjoyed being in the hot seat once more. I'll be back with you maybe in another couple of weeks on holiday. Fill in again for Michael Reid and then for a longer period period in September and I'm looking forward to your company again then very much indeed. And Michael, will be back to you uh, tomorrow morning. In the meantime, my thanks to Maureen, Maggie and Chris and all the LMFM team and have a great day.
3: The Michael Reid
2: Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us email now. Michael at lmfm.ie